The Monsi are an indigenous group found in northwestern Siberia, the part of Siberia that's pretty much exactly what people think of when they picture Siberia. Brutal cold, snow, mountains, not a lot of people. The Monsi reside in villages, mostly in the river valleys of the Ural Mountains, living in traditional yurts, insulated by reindeer hides. Their economy revolves mostly around hunting and fishing, as well as herding reindeer. They're peaceful people, friendly towards hikers, sometimes offering them tea and warmth as they pass through. They have a rich history dating back hundreds of years. And over the course of that history, many of the mountains in their territory have been given names. One such mountain is Halachal, which translates to Dead Mountain. But it's kind of a funny thing, because as sinister as it sounds, it's not really the intention. It's easy to interpret this as Mountain of the Dead, a place of tragedy. But the correct interpretation is much more mundane and harmless. It's simply named after its lack of vegetation. But as it turns out, Halachal Mountain may not be quite as harmless as this interpretation of the name implies. This is simply strange podcast where anything spooky, weird, and goosebump-inducing is fair game. Hello, everyone. My name is PJ, and welcome to episode 10 of Simply Strange, the big one I guess that's kind of a landmark, even if it's a small insignificant one that ultimately no one's going to care about. Kind of the equivalent of a rest stop on a long drive, I guess. In the grand scheme of things, it doesn't matter, but in the moment, it feels pretty good to get here, right? I don't know. Whatever. Episode 10, we did it. One bit of housekeeping before I get this episode started. I've got to slip in my shameless begging for iTunes reviews. If you're a regular listener and you enjoy the show and you haven't had a chance to leave a review yet, please do. It's super easy and you'd be amazed what a difference it makes. Whenever a new review pops up, the downloads over the next couple days pretty much double. It goes from like one download a day to two. So that's pretty critical. If you want to support the show right now, that's definitely the best way to do it. So today we will be traveling to Soviet Russia. And quick disclaimer, I do not speak Russian. I'm going to do my best, but please forgive any pronunciation errors. Our story today is that of Dyadlov Pass. This is probably the most well-known story that I've covered so far. It's already been done by quite a few different podcasts, and I've been debating for a while whether or not I want to add my take on it to the list. And as you can see... I guess I finally decided I did. I just think that it's a really fascinating case. I still remember the first time I heard about it. It was, I believe, my freshman year in college, and I was at the library writing a paper. Or at least 
that's what I had planned on doing. And somehow I ended up stumbling upon the Dyatlov Pass Wikipedia page. And it was pretty much game over from there. I don't remember exactly how much of my paper ended up getting written. But it's safe to say that I learned a lot more about Dyatlov Pass that evening than I did whatever I was supposed to be writing about. And now, I will impart that knowledge unto you. So let us venture forth together to Dyatlov Pass. Igor Dyatlov was born on January 13, 1936, in Soviet Russia. He grew up to be a talented engineer and an extremely passionate outdoorsman, particularly when it came to hiking the nearby Ural Mountains. He attended Ural Polytechnic Institute, where he studied radio engineering, which was a perfect fit for him. He actually did a really cool thing and was able to combine his skills as an engineer and his love of hiking by creating portable, lightweight, for the time anyway, gizmos that he was able to utilize on his hiking excursions, like a portable radio and a small stove. Eager had a reputation around the school as being an incredible hiker and an impressive, authoritative leader. It was common for students at Ural Polytechnic Institute to go on group hikes, and to be invited to join Eager's group was something of an accomplishment. In late January 1959, he organized one such hike. It was a ski tour to the top of Otorton Mountain, and upon completing the hike, everyone in the group would be awarded Grade 3 Hiking Certification, which was the highest hiking certification in the Soviet Union at the time. Each of the nine members of the group was already an accomplished, successful grade two hiker, and they were eager for the opportunity to reach the highest level. They were an experienced bunch that had already proven their mettle on numerous occasions. Luda was once accidentally shot in the leg while hiking through Siberia and survived being carried out through 50 miles of brutal terrain. And Yuri Doroshenko, one of three Yuris in the group, once fought off a bear with nothing but a rock pick. It was no easy task becoming a level two hiker. The fact that each of them had already reached this level shows that they were all extremely capable, creating a team that seemed able to tackle any difficulties that might get thrown their way. All told, there were seven men and two women in the group, and they were all great friends. They set out the morning of January 24th, 1959. Obviously, the hiking was the meat of the journey, but getting to the hiking was no small feat either. In order to reach Otorton Mountain, the group first had to take a tram from school to the train station, 
then a train to the town of Serov, or they would hop on another train to the town of Ivdel. As they rode the train, the group acquired a tenth member, a grisly, tattooed, gold-toothed World War II veteran turned hiking instructor named Sasha Zolotaryov. Sasha was 38, much older than the rest of the group, who were all students in their early 20s. Sasha had been planning on setting out with someone else, an acquaintance of Igor's, who ended up having scheduling conflicts at the last minute and instead connected him with Igor's group. The rest of the group wasn't particularly excited at first to see this nearly double their age stranger joining their party at the last minute, but Igor vouched for him and they all began to warm up to him, and before too long, they had all broken out into song together as the train wound its way through the frozen countryside towards Evedel. Upon their arrival, the next step was to hop on a bus to the small village of Vizhay, which was the northernmost settlement in the area. And then after Vizhay, they would take another truck to... Sector 41, which was a small forestry camp inhabited only by about 50 or so workers. This, finally, would be the starting point of the actual hike. It took the group three days of travel just to get there, a testament to just how far away from civilization their journey took them. Beyond Sector 41 was nothing but snow and trees, a seemingly endless expanse of frozen, desolate tundra, with lows in the negative 20s Fahrenheit. Leaving Sector 41 was where the hard part would truly begin, and if something went wrong, it could be days before anyone found out. On the morning of January 27th, Eager and the rest of the group set out. Day one of the hike was about as easy as a negative 20 degree trek through the frozen tundra could possibly get. The first stop was an old abandoned geologic settlement. They hired a man who they affectionately referred to as Grandpa Slava and a horse to carry their bags for the first leg of the journey, which allowed them to ski unimpeded and make a great time stopping only occasionally to break the monotony of the hike by taking photos or snacking on some warm bread that they had bought back in Sector 41. Together, the group kept a journal, logging all of their travels as they went, and everything recorded showed that the journey was nothing but a great time. Pictures show the friends laughing and making goofy faces, pretending to struggle after falling in the snow or grinning while laying on the ground after actually falling in the snow, following tripping over some abandoned tools at the geologic site. That night, after arriving at the site, many members of the group stayed up until their early morning hours, 
laughing about their experience so far and discussing what the morning would bring. One member of the group, Yuri Yurden, stood out a little bit from the rest. The reason being that he was fighting a lifelong struggle with a number of different health problems, the likes of which could easily prevent most people from attempting hiking at all, much less a tremendous undertaking like this. He suffered from rheumatism, a heart defect, and chronic knee and back pain, issues that were amplified by the hodgepodge of transportation methods that they took to get there, especially the bumpy ride and the back of a lumber truck up to Sector 41. All throughout the traveling, his pain grew increasingly worse, and now that the hiking had officially begun, it was slowly becoming unbearable. He toughed it out as best as he could throughout the first day, Largely because he was the resident geologist of the group, and he was really excited to see the abandoned site. But as they continued on, it became increasingly obvious, both to Yuri and his friends, that he wasn't going to be able to continue. So on day two, after they spent the night at the site, and he got his opportunity to take a look around, he turned around and headed back to town with Grandpa Slava and the horse. Before they got too far into the hike and his ailments got worse and there was no turning back anymore. On the morning of February 1st, the group created a mock newspaper in the pages of their journal called The Evening O'Torton. Among its pages was a piece wondering, is it possible to keep nine hikers warm with one stove and one blanket? There was an ad announcing a daily seminar about love and hiking and a sports page with the headline, Comrades Doroshenko and Kolmogorova set a new world record in competition for stove assembly. And on the science page was an article claiming that a yeti had been spotted, lurking on the northern side of Otorton Mountain. They were getting closer to Otorton Mountain, their ultimate destination, and getting ready to ascend to the peak. And to make the journey easier, they left some non-essentials at the base to pick up on the way back down later. And then they began the ascent. Due to the increasingly brutal weather, and having gotten off to a bit of a late start, the hikers only made it about two and a half miles that day before setting up camp for the evening. They opted for a little bit of a strange spot in the open on a slope, which was unusual. Typically with the freezing wind, they would want to be under cover. And there was a forest only a kilometer and a half or so away. But with the terrible storm, it's possible that they were disoriented and didn't know where the forest was, or they didn't want to have to backtrack to reach the forest and then cover that ground again in the morning. Whatever the case, they decided to hunker down out in the open, on the 30-degree slope of a mountain, and ride out the storm until the morning. But what they didn't know was that there would be no morning for the nine unfortunate hikers, and they would never get the chance to write the second edition of the evening O'Torton. The mountainside that the hikers had elected to set up camp on was that of Halachal Mountain, or as the Monsi know it, Dead Mountain.
Now, it's important to remember, this is 1959. Igor Dyatlov and his team obviously didn't have cell phones with them. They were completely off the grid out there. People knew roughly where they'd be and when they were expected back. Their families, friends, other hikers. But there's not much anyone could do to keep tabs on the group while they were actually out in the mountains. The plan was for them to arrive back to school around February 13th, and all that anyone could really do until then was wait, and assume that they'd show up. Which is what everyone did, they had no reason to suspect anything was wrong. But February 13th came and went, and there was no sign of Dyatlov's party. Then February 14th, and 15th, and on to the 16th. And that was around the time that people started to get a little worried. These matters weren't an exact science. All it could take was some bad weather, a sprained ankle, a missed train. Any little thing could cause a delay of a day or two. But at a certain point, you start to cross the line between acceptable margin of error and the possibility of something being really, truly wrong. And on the 16th, Three days after they were expected back, their family and friends started to reach that point. Relatives began phoning the school, and the school sent a telegram to the town of Vizhay, where they set out from. Vizhay responded that the Dyatlov group did not return. And so, on February 20th, the search began. Over the next week, searchers flew over the area by plane and by helicopter scouring the land for any signs of the missing hikers. They conducted foot searches and spoke with the local Montsi tribes to see if they had any information about the hikers' whereabouts. For five days, there was no sign of the missing hikers. Until the 25th, when the searchers finally found some ski tracks, which the next day led them to the hikers' abandoned tent, collapsed and partially covered in snow. The missing hikers were nowhere to be seen. And this is where the mystery truly begins. The collapsed tent was severely damaged, sliced open in several locations. Yet it looked like when they left, they had every intention of returning. Food, jackets, shoes, a camera, medicine, skis, and tools were all left behind items that you would think the group would want to return for. When the tent was discovered, it was too late in the day for any further searching to be done. But the fact that there were no bodies inside did give the researchers some renewed hope that maybe the group was still alive, possibly huddled together in a cave or a shelter somewhere. So the next morning, the rescue team was up and at it early. In the area immediately surrounding the tent... There were no discernible clues as to where the group had set off to. But before long, nine sets of footprints were found about 20 yards away from the tent that had yet to be covered up by the snow. The searchers began to follow the tracks to the west towards a nearby forest, observing that many of them appeared to have been barefoot. As some of the searchers began to follow the trail, Two others, Mikhail Sherevin and Yuri Koptolov, began to scout an area for the growing crew of rescuers to set up a base camp. This effort 
took them about a mile northeast of where the tent had been into a valley. And it was here that something caught their eye and didn't seem quite right. They found the remains of a hastily made fire pit directly under a cedar tree with broken branches. And as they searched the area, just a few yards away, they found the first of the missing hikers' remains. A knee was poking out of the snow, while the rest of the body was completely covered. Mikhail and Yuri didn't disturb the body, and instead they ran back to alert the rest of the searchers. Upon returning, the team unearthed the body, finding that it was actually two bodies lying side by side in the snow. They were identified as Georgi Krivonoshenko and Yuri Doroshenko. Neither was wearing jackets or pants, and they were dressed completely inappropriately for the sub-freezing temperatures, one wearing only a light shirt and long underwear with swim trunks underneath, and the other wore long underwear, two shirts, briefs, and socks. And the clothes that they were wearing were badly shredded, like they had been forcibly removed. After the finding of the first two bodies, the rescue crews with the aid of police dogs began to focus their search more on the area around where the first two bodies were found, wandering through the brush and hoping that the dogs would be able to pick up the scent of some of the other hikers. And that afternoon, they did find two more bodies. First, about 300 meters away from the first two bodies, they found Igor Dyatlov. He was lying on his back with his head in the direction of the tent, grasping a small tree, as if he was struggling to pull his way back towards the tent, even as he was dying. He too was lightly dressed, although better than his two comrades. He was wearing a sweater with a fur vest and ski trousers. But he also had no shoes, no hat, no gloves. After Eager, a fourth body was found, also heading in the direction of the tent, but a little bit closer. This was Zina Kolmogorova. She too had no shoes. But aside from that, she was actually dressed pretty adequately, and that was it for a while. The search for the remaining bodies continued over the coming weeks, as did the process of trying to piece together exactly what happened to the doomed hikers. On March 5th, Rustam Slobodin's body was found buried in the snow where Igor and Zina had been found. And after that, two months went by without any new discoveries. Until May 3rd, when a Monsi searcher noticed a trail of cut branches in the snow in a ravine. They looked to have been cut by a knife. He immediately relayed the discovery to the rest of the search party, and later that day the team began excavating the snow in the ravine. That day, they found several articles of clothing in the snow. And on the second day, they found the bodies of the four remaining hikers at the bottom of a ravine, wholly submerged in a mixture of slush and snow and decomposed to the point that they were barely recognizable. It appeared that they had their wits about them in their final hours. They had dug out some shelter in the snow and lined the ground with branches in an attempt to keep warm. These four were also fairly well-dressed, but missing shoes, as was becoming the trend. One of them, 
Alexander Kolevatov seemed to have met a similar fate to everyone else who had been discovered so far. Some minor cuts and scratches, and eventually death by hypothermia. But the other three were a much different story. The other three had all sustained massive internal damage. Broken ribs, skull fractures, hemorrhaging. Two were missing their eyeballs. And Luda Dubinina was missing her eyes and her tongue. So this is the part where we talk about the weird stuff. And there is a lot of weird stuff to unpack here. So let's try to unpack some of it. Going back to the tent, investigators eventually determined that the slashes all over it were not from some attacker slashing the tent open from outside, ambushing them in the middle of the night, but that they were instead made from the inside of the tent that the hikers had cut their way out for some reason. On top of that, there were only nine footprints found for the nine hikers. So there was no one else out there, nor was there any evidence that they were attacked by any sort of animal. Yet, something must have happened that set these experienced hikers into such a frenzy that they couldn't even be bothered to open the tent's zipper and leave in a nice, orderly fashion, or even to put on the necessary clothes to survive in the frigid tundra. Instead, they frantically cut their way out of the tent and fled the scene with no shoes and not nearly enough warm clothes to survive, eventually winding their way down the mountain to a valley where they hastily set up a new camp. And this brings us to the state of undress that many of the deceased were found in, while others seemed to be pretty well off, aside from boots. One common explanation is that those found in a state of undress, particularly Georgie and Yuri, the first two who had been found, experienced an anomaly known as paradoxical undressing. This is a behavior in which someone who is suffering from hypothermia is essentially tricked by their brain into experiencing feelings of burning warmth, and in an attempt to find relief, they start to undress. That's fine, but there are some glaring issues with this. Boots aside, most of them were pretty reasonably dressed, and this theory ignores that. I think that the more likely scenario is that they just left most of their clothes behind in the rush to escape the tent. If they didn't even have time to unzip the tent, would they really stop to take the time to put on their boots? I highly doubt it. They just took off with whatever they had on at the time, and after that, at least some of them ended up together in the river valley. Georgie and Yuri looked to be the first two to die, and then their freezing friends cut off their clothes to keep themselves warm. It's rough, but the fact of the matter is that they needed to survive and this was their best shot. This makes a lot more sense than the paradoxical undressing if you think about the fact that Georgie and Yuri's bodies appeared to have been moved together side by side after their death, indicating that they weren't alone. And then there's the birch tree near where they were found, underneath which the fire was built. 
It had a lot of broken branches. Some of them were up to five meters high, and there were bits of flesh found embedded in the tree by investigators, both indicating that perhaps someone had tried to climb the tree to get their bearings. And it seems like that worked since the next three bodies were seemingly headed away from this area and back towards the tent, all of whom were better dressed than Georgie and Yuri, and some were even wearing clothes that appeared to have been cut from Georgie and Yuri's bodies. So paradoxical undressing, I would say, is busted. And then there's the other four who were found in the ravine, which is where the plot really thickens. And like I mentioned, three of the four sustained significant internal trauma, like broken ribs and skull fractures which is kind of weird on its own, but what's even weirder, the part that I did not mention, was that none of them appeared to have sustained any external soft tissue damage relating to the injuries. According to the doctor who did the autopsy, this indicated that they weren't attacked by anyone, that there was no struggle of any kind, and instead indicated that the injuries were sustained by being subjected to extreme pressure, something like a car crash or perhaps getting disoriented on a pitch-black night and falling into a ravine. As for Luda's tongue, it was most likely just picked off by birds or some other form of wildlife sometime after she died. Really, when it comes down to it, I think a lot of what happened was pretty straightforward. Once the hikers left the tent and came back to their senses, they began a doomed attempt to make it back to the safety of their tent. They tried to make a fire to keep warm, but slowly began to succumb to hypothermia. As their friends died, the others were forced to make the difficult but necessary decision to remove the clothes of their companions for their own warmth. At some point, the remaining friends were separated into two groups. One group in the darkness stumbled into the ravine, and sustained severe injuries in the process. Injuries that rendered them unable to get back out. So instead they constructed a shelter as best as they could and hoped to be rescued. But they never were. The second group, led by Igor Dyatlov, fought until their dying breath to make it up the mountain to their camp. But eventually they too succumbed to hypothermia. But this still leaves the biggest question of all unanswered. Why did they ever leave the tent in the first place? And what could possibly have scared them to the point that they didn't even bother to put shoes on, and they escaped the tent, their only shelter, by tearing it apart? Well, there are a lot of theories here, some of which are super interesting, and some of them are pretty haphazard and a stretch and shouldn't really be considered theories, but we'll address them anyway. So let's start with the obvious one, and the one that probably pops up the most when researching Dyatlov Pass, that there was an avalanche, and the hikers were either swept up in it and carried away down the mountain, or they ran down the mountain trying to escape it. Or maybe they had to cut their way out of the tent. The tent was partially covered in snow, but it was certainly not buried in the way that it would have been if it had really been hit by an avalanche. On top of that, the hikers had left a couple items sitting upright in the snow, and these items appeared to be undisturbed when the rescuers eventually arrived at the tent. There was no evidence of an avalanche in the area, 
no one in the group was found in any sort of circumstances indicative of having been swept up in an avalanche. And it just doesn't seem like there's any reason to think that that's what happened. Some people theorize that maybe they were attacked, either by escaped prisoners, hiding out in the mountains, or by Monsi hunters. Both of these seem pretty unlikely for similar reasons. It doesn't fit with the wounds that they received or with the details of their camp. There were no extra footprints anywhere indicating that someone else was with them that night. Their tent was cut from the inside, the campsite undisturbed. There's nothing to show that they were attacked. And then there's some of the weirder theories. A yeti comes up here and there. There's no evidence for that at all, but it still comes up. And then there's some theories involving UFOs, of course. Although the UFOs, in this case, may not have been of the extraterrestrial variety. Apparently, around the same time that the hikers were out there, Soviet forces launched rockets from a base that was a thousand miles or so away in what is now Kazakhstan. And some people actually saw these rockets in the sky and somehow think that they're associated with the hikers. Maybe that they saw them and they were really close by and scared them out of the tent. There's also speculation that the hikers happened to set up camp in the middle of a Soviet parachute mine exercise, that they woke up to loud explosions in the sky from mines falling from Soviet airplanes. These mines are on parachutes and wouldn't explode upon impact with the ground, but they'd instead explode in the air, so there wouldn't be as much damage to the ground, and it might be harder to see the aftermath, but it could explain the heavy internal damage that they suffered while not having so much external trauma. This theory is strange, though, because at the very least you would expect there to be some amount of shrapnel found left behind. It's hard to say exactly how plausible that is, but it's definitely interesting. And another theory that falls into the probably a stretch but interesting bucket is a theory that the unfortunate hikers found themselves caught in the middle of a battle between the KGB and the CIA. Remember Sasha Zolotaryov, the older guy who joined the expedition at the last minute that no one really knew? According to Alexei Rakitin, who wrote a book called Dyatlov Pass, Sasha Zolotaryov, Alexander Kolovatov, and Yuri Krivonoshenko all had pretty strong connections to the Soviet government and possibly were KGB agents on a mission to uncover a cell of CIA agents who, I guess, were staked out somewhere in the Ural Mountains. And according to this theory, the real objective of this trip was for the group to deliver radioactive samples to a group of CIA agents, as well as to take pictures of the CIA agents. And in order to do that, the three of them joined this group of hikers, using it as their alibi and a way to get close to the CIA agents, to eventually deliver the radioactive materials and take pictures of them. And the rest of the group would have no idea that this was actually going on. And as the story goes, the CIA agents found out there was some sort of conflict that happened, and eventually everyone ended up dead. 
the interesting thing about this that actually does make this theory seem a little bit more possible is the fact that some of the deceased bodies were actually found to be wearing clothes with slight radioactivity, yet none of the bodies were actually radioactive. And also, some of the cameras were missing rolls of film. So, maybe there was something to this, and maybe the CIA agents just covered it up and took all the evidence, including the missing rolls of film. Another interesting thing about this theory is the fact that a lot of the files relating to this case have conveniently and mysteriously gotten missing. Most likely, it's just been a mistake, but it does make you wonder what was in those files. This theory, again, makes for a fascinating story, but there's no real concrete evidence of anything at the site. And in Sasha's defense... He was really a ski instructor, and he did need the performance points given from completing this trip to increase his rank as an instructor. Following the team's tragic demise, the area became known as Dyatlov Pass, in honor of the group's revered leader, Igor Dyatlov. In the end, all of these narratives that have been constructed over the years are just speculation, and we've really just scratched the surface. There's hundreds of theories as to what happened that night. But in the end, it seems pretty clear what happened to the unfortunate group after they left the tent, that they just succumbed to hypothermia or the injuries that they sustained fumbling around in the dark. And the real mystery here is what happened to scare these experienced adventurers out of the safety of their tent and into the treacherous, sub-freezing Russian wilderness with no shoes and minimal clothes. At this point, it's likely a question that will never be answered. All right, guys, well, that's a wrap for this week's episode of Simply Strange. I hope you thought that was interesting. Maybe you haven't heard of that case before, and that was a whole new ride for you, and if you have heard of it, I hope maybe you learned something new. If you have any thoughts, feel free to reach out on social media. I mostly use Instagram at Simply Strange Podcast, or you can email us at simplystrangepodcast at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you. Uh, something exciting, we have a new website now, simplystrangepodcast.com. I tried to get Simply Strange, but it was $5,000, and Simply Strange Podcast was only $1. So that seemed like the way to go. Um, I don't know what you'll do on it exactly. It's mostly just links to where you can listen to the podcast. And clearly you've already figured out how to do that, but it's there, so take a look if you want. The next episode's probably going to come out in three weeks instead of the normal two. Just a warning. I know that's probably devastating and i'm so sorry you don't care no one cares um yeah that's it guys thanks for listening and have a happy